Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon. I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We're both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team. And we're on the podcast to break down some of the interesting issues with respect to benefits, compliance, and how that impacts employers. Today, we're going to focus on telemedicine and telehealth, uh, the proliferation of those during the pandemic, and what needs to happen from a policy perspective to continue this uh, trend, this upward trend of usage. Uh, So Suzanne, tell us a little bit, give us us some background here. Yeah, so I I do wanna say that I've gotten uh, some of this data from the Heritage Foundation. So I wanna give credit to uh, them. They have uh, a lot of good information on policy considerations. But when we talk about telehealth, we're we're talking about patients who are able to get care from a medical professional, either remotely by phone or video. They can also use medical tools at home, such as uh, an EKG device that would connect via their mobile phone. The word telehealth and telemedicine are technically different. They often are used interchangeably, but if we want to be technical here, telehealth is really the broader term and encompasses all forms of remotely delivered healthcare that would include not only those medical devices like EKGs connected to the phone, but it also includes doctors remotely monitoring a patient's health data. So telemedicine is really the, the portion that relates to the visit with a healthcare provider. So it's, it is a form of telehealth. It's a subset of telehealth. So we will use the term telehealth more broadly um, it, it, within our discussion today. But I, I like to add a little bit of history because I, I think it's fun to look back and see where some of these different programs began. And you might be surprised to know that telehealth went back to the invention of the electrical telegraph and and the the telephone, really. During the Civil War, telegraph was used for communicating injuries and for medical consultations. So it went back that far. But we really saw in 1959, what was considered the first case of a real-time video telemedicine consult via the University of Nebraska, who used it for an interactive um, telemedicine to transmit neurological examination. So that was really what they consider kind of the the first case of what we consider telemedicine today. If you look at the various medical specialties, radiology was really the first specialty to to fully embrace telemedicine. And then in the 1990s with the advent of the internet, or, or I should say the explosion of the internet, that really helped increase the idea of telehealth. If we look more recently to the time just before COVID-19, we saw a a vast increase in telehealth that had been growing over several years. So for example, in non-hospital settings, we saw an increase of almost 1,400% between the years of 2014 to 2018. That's according to the Fair Health publication. As of 2019, over 90% of those mid-sized to large-sized employers who who were surveyed said that they intended to offer telemedicine services in their employee benefits health plans by the end of 2020. And then we also saw, um, and, and what we really think is, is part of this growing trend was that we began to see longer wait times in doctor's offices. So obviously telemedicine helps with reducing the time spent 
uh, both traveling to the office, waiting in those waiting rooms. And it helps the doctors because they don't have to prepare rooms in between patient visits. They can reduce the number of staff that is required uh, you know, to implement those telehealth services. So all in all, we've, we've just seen a growth um, even prior to COVID-19 in telehealth generally. Yeah, so that's really interesting. We always think of telehealth as being so modern and so recent, but it does go back quite a ways, as you're saying, obviously increasing hugely over the last few years. But what about during the pandemic? We feel like we've seen a lot more use of telehealth, telemedicine uh, during the pandemic. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yes. So for obvious reasons, I mean, telehealth, as we said, it helps patients avoid those crowded waiting rooms where either they could be exposed to individuals who had COVID-19 or they could expose others. And it would, so it reduced overall the risk of the viral transmission between patients and really with the medical staff and enabled providers to also conserve masks, conserve other PPE. Um, so it's overall, it's been a win-win and during the COVID-19 you know, period. When we look at some of the companies that help support telemedicine services, telehealth services, Teladoc, for example, reported that visits more than doubled by April 15th from early March. Zipnosis, um, their telemedicine platform reported a 3,600% increase in use during the first 11 days of the outbreak in the U.S. And NYU Langone, that's a, that's a medical uh, system up in New York. Uh, I will say I listen to the Dr. Channel and Sirius uh, Radio, and, and they have a great Dr. Channel and, and provide a lot of good information through that channel. They reported an increase in non-urgent telemedicine care by 4,345% during the pandemic. So obviously wow. it's, a, it's increased significantly during those times. And when you look at how the telehealth market is, is expected to grow year over year, the expectations are an 80% increase year over year. So just exponential growth there. Obviously the need for it in the pandemics, so you have the kind of the situation and the um, environment for it. And then you have the technology for it, but this was also facilitated a lot by policy changes, right? Can you talk to that a little bit more, both at federal and state level? Yes, and this is a time where we really saw our government act quickly. So it was nice both at the federal level and the state level to see um, both jumping into gear and to really help uh, support telehealth services. So Congress, the Trump administration, and all states took action to enable telehealth delivery. So for example, the Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Supplemental Appropriations Act that was enacted on March 6th, so really at the forefront of the pandemic, it allowed CMS to temporarily lift the restriction that only allowed telehealth for Medicare services that were uh, residing in rural communities. So it expanded it beyond the rural communities. Through the CARES Act, and that was enacted later on in March, March 27th, Congress temporarily allowed individuals with high deductible health plans to use HSA funds for telehealth services without first having to meet that deductible. So we've talked about that on prior podcasts. Obviously, individuals cannot contribute to an HSA if they have impermissible coverage. And um, certainly coverage that would pay prior to the deductible would be considered impermissible, but for this temporary lift on that requirement. We also saw in all 50 states and the District of Columbia expanding access to telemedicine through their Medicaid programs and or for privately insured patients for, again, for the duration of the emergency. So it, it implemented also changes in the Medicaid program that restricted the ability of insurers to implement just more widespread use of telemedicine. 
So for example, having to do with either how they define telemedicine, what providers could provide telemedicine, and we'll go more into that in a moment. But I will say this was really coupled with some of the changes that happened in the prior year. So really prior to the pandemic, we saw a lot of action from states. So we saw 35 states that were finalizing 54 total regulations and passed um, 113 bills that related and expanded telehealth services. 23 states addressed medical licensing regulations that previously had restricted patients to seeing only those doctors who were licensed to practice in their state where they were residing. And so we, in 2019, really kicked off a lot of state action on telehealth, and then they expanded it even further during the pandemic. Right. How have patients reacted to all this? Are they happy with telehealth? Is this going well? It, it appears so. There's a lot of uh, satisfaction surveys that are ongoing right now. I'll just point to one because I thought it was, you know, it just kind of gets to the heart of it. And it was really a survey by Penn Medicine of 800 gastroenterology and hepatology patients. It found that 67% satis- uh, satisfaction over the traditional type visit. 96% of those who were surveyed said that they were satisfied or very satisfied with the medical care. So if, if we expand and expect other surveys to show similar results, you can see that it's not only a win-win in many cases for doctors, um, but certainly from the patient perspective and not having to um, travel to doctor's offices and really having greater access to some physicians. So overall, it seems like it has been a positive development. Yeah, certainly with the convenience factor, I, I like the idea, right? <laughs> Let's right. look at some of the policy implications, though, particularly beyond the pandemic. Yeah, so I think, you know, again, when you look at all of the positive benefits that come from telehealth, we want to look beyond the pandemic and look at what needs to happen. But, but if, if we take a, a tighter look or a closer look into what has occurred, we saw, for example, the federal and state policymakers remove those barriers that we had just mentioned from a broad perspective. If we drill down on it further, we can look at Congress who allowed CMS to temporarily relift that restriction we had mentioned that only permitted um, individuals who resided in rural communities. So again, it allowed anyone to have access to that. They also waived the Medicare rules that prevented physicians who were licensed in one state from practicing telemedicine in another. That's really key in helping provide greater adoption of telemedicine. And they also encourage states to reimburse medical professionals for telehealth services via their Medicaid program. So remember, Medicaid is largely run by the states, but they receive federal funding. So CMS does have influence over what states do with their Medicaid programs. And so when I say encourage, that was probably a a soft word for what they can do um, when they're speaking to states and asking them to take a certain action. So we did see states taking action with respect to their Medicaid programs. We also saw states expand access beyond Medicaid to also the private insured patients. And so, for example, um, Kansas, Florida, Missouri, Tennessee, and Vermont permitted physicians who were licensed out of state to offer remote services. This really, again, related to their Medicaid patients, but um, it did show that flexibility. New Jersey expedited expedited a licensing process for out-of-state providers. So you saw them taking action on Again, allowing that flexibility with which providers could provide telehealth services within their state. And then we saw private insurers waiving cost sharing for the telemedicine visits to make that adoption with the patients um, more readily available. And in some cases, the states were requiring it. In other cases, the private insurers did it on their own. 
Um, as I mentioned earlier, Congress amended the Internal Revenue Code that permitted high deductible health plans with HSAs to cover those telehealth services prior to reaching that deductible. They also issued temporary reforms to reduce uh, or waive cost sharing for telehealth visits that were paid by any federal health care program. And CMS is continuing to update their definition of a provider that can offer telehealth services, and they've, they've really put uh, the telehealth services on a sub-regulatory basis so that those changes can be made as soon as you have additional types of providers that are seeking to broad, provide those kind of services. Again, it's just to make it a more efficient process and to allow flexibility to expand that definition, which is really important. They did implement a reimbursement scheme, and we'll speak more to this later, to uh, require that telehealth be reimbursed at the same rate as a regular in-person visit under CMS. If you look to other federal agencies, we saw FDA also jumping into the mix, and they issued guidance to allow manufacturers of medical tools um, to suspend the requirement that they obtain prior approval for hardware or software modifications that would enhance the remote monitoring capabilities of those patient monitoring devices. Again, the FDA is stepping in to say, we recognize that some of these devices need to be utilized in a remote setting, and so let's make that process a bit more efficient. They also allowed manufacturers to market for home use some of those medical devices that previously were approved only for use in a hospital setting or a healthcare facility setting. So the FDA jumped in again and said, we do want some of these tools to be used in that remote type system. So um, both we saw action at the state and federal level of, uh, of really taking this seriously and, and helping to facilitate the adoption of telehealth services. Yeah, really some strong momentum across all levels here, and uh, that's all very important. What do we have to do after the pandemic from a policy perspective to sort of keep that momentum going? Well, you're right. I mean, many of these, um, these different policy changes that we talked about were only temporary, and we would like to see the policymakers build on these initial successes and take further action to remove those barriers and really to adopt some of these policies ongoing and, and even adopt new ones that would expand the use of telehealth services. So let's take, let's kind of drill down on that and, and look at some of the different policy changes. And we'll yeah. start number one with reimbursement policies. And, and, and this is to allow the reimbursement rate flexibility for telehealth. So I mentioned earlier that CMS implemented a, uh, a requirement that they pay the same rate as an in-person visit. What we'd really like to see is more flexibility there for the adoption to expand with telehealth services. It should really allow flexibility to look at the cost of care. And if it is cheaper to provide those telehealth services, allow payment for those services to be reduced as well, because that would help the overall system, not only from the patient perspective, from the payer perspective, but even really from the provider perspective in that they could see greater adoption of their services in that way if the cost was not prohibited. Um, one model, for example, we can look at is Utah, and it permits certain providers to request reimbursement from health plans that are covering public employees for medically appropriate telemedicine services, and they use the term commercially reasonable rate. So that shows you the flexibility they wanted to take into account the market rate that would be commercially reasonable. So that's the type of flexibility we'd like to see with reimbursement going forward. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we would like to see those, those things that are encouraging the adoption of those telehealth tools and innovation really in that area. So this would require policymakers to pay attention to the statutory and regulatory definitions 
um, that, that varies wildly across when you look across the state and you look at the federal government definition of things that could be reimbursed for telemedicine. For example, you have automated diagnostic tools known as asynchronous telemedicine, and that is a form of telemedicine. For example, Zipnosis is one of those tools, and it uses a platform known as an adaptive interview, and it adjusts its diagnostic questions based on patient responses. And what they found, and this all occurs in real time, what they found is that over 88% of their visits were done in this manner, and they required only 1.5 minutes of clinical work per patient. So by allowing this, really this AI type technology to be used, um, it reduced the, the need for the clinical intervention. And so if you you're allow this tool to um, be expanded, of course, it's going to be, it wouldn't work for all patients, but flexibility with that tool is key. So policymakers need to use updated definitions that allow broad definition for new technologies that involve that can be reimbursed without having to wait for a change in the definition each time a new tool is developed. So that's, we'd like to see some, some consistency, but also mm -hmm. some flexibility with definitions of um, items and services and providers who can be reimbursed in a telehealth setting. Number three, um, we mentioned this uh, earlier, again, policymakers need to eliminate the requirements that would prevent patients from receiving telehealth from doctors in other states. And so this would really is really important in those areas where you have a lack of care, um, especially in the specialty care area, the specialist in the rural settings, for example. Um, this is really important. But one, one way in which this, this could be implemented is the way that Georgia handles uh, licensing of out-of-state telehealth practitioners. They have an expedited track to allow those um, to be now licensed in their state if they have appropriate licensure in other states. It's really important with respect to, you know, just consistency across states, particularly in the states that are much closer together. I'm talking a little bit about the East Coast, right, where you just have different states, different rules. You have people going back and forth across state lines. Uh, so consistency would be a huge boon there, I, th I would think. Certainly. And when you look at best, best practices in medical care, they certainly don't limit to practices within their states. You look at best practices across the U.S., um, mm -hmm. similar to when we talk about the PCOR you know, they're looking at best practices for certain diagnosis codes, and they look across the entire U.S. based on not only the efficacy of the type of treatment, but also the cost involved. So the, the idea that you must be limited to a provider only licensed in your state does seem a bit, um, you know, old school. Uh, so the next one would be HIPAA. Obviously, HIPAA has a big impact when it comes to providers and to our group health plans. And what we'd like to do is to make sure that HIPAA takes into account telemedicine and the way in which it is delivered. So currently HIPAA does not include any provisions that relate to telehealth. They did state that during the pandemic, they would waive any penalties for issues that related to the use of the apps like FaceTime or Skype or some of those other telehealth tools. So most of those tools have security features, but they may not rise to the level of what HIPAA requires. Um, what we'd like to see is that this is addressed going forward and that, that there's really some standards to allow any individual or provider that uses those tools to have um, to rest easy if they know that they are compliant with HIPAA and don't have to be concerned from a liability perspective. Otherwise, if they're concerned that the use of the tools could create liability, it's going to jeopardize the adoption of those telehealth services long term. And then finally, of course, as we mentioned, we want those HSA flexibility to be expanded ongoing for telemedicine. Again, 
That's to allow um, for HSAs to pay for telemedicine services before that deductible is met. And we want that to continue post-pandemic, post-emergency time period. So that's an important key element, especially for our group health plans. Yeah, those last two points really kind of bring us back to the benefits compliance world, right? With HIPAA, privacy, and then obviously this interaction between HSA eligibility and, and telehealth, telemedicine. So those would be important to continue post-pandemic. Right. Thank you, Suzanne. For great uh, policy perspectives here and things to think about. Anything else with respect to telemedicine that you want to talk to? No, I think that generally it's just there's, there's been a clear adoption, some clear flexibility that was important that was implemented during the pandemic to for the use of telehealth services. We've seen that it really does work in many situations. So, uh, you know, we need some policy perspective long term for the, the long term adoption of telehealth services, because there's some real benefits to not only the patient community, but the provider community as well. So we would like some right. some focus uh, placed on policies that are directed towards the expansion of telehealth post-pandemic. Right. Well, thank you very much, Suzanne. Um, and as we like to say at the close of our podcast. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>